Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome everybody to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And you are listening to Tax Tuesday, where we're bringing tax knowledge to the masses. So happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. You don't seem that enthused, Jeff. Oh, we started tax season, so. You're a little tired? And, uh, or is yeah. it you're so excited? I'm so excited, you know, I want to be in there. Jeff's exuberance is boiling over today. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Hey, yeah, uh, we got a bunch of folks on today. Uh, well, I'll kind of go through the rules and we'll jump right on in because we're going to try to keep you here for just an hour, which is always a battle. But uh, you ask your questions live uh, via the question and answer feature. And if you see the question and answer feature, that's where you ask questions that are very specific to you. If you're responding to something we're asking, use the chat because then we can have a conversation. So I can already see people saying, hey, so why don't you, we'll practice in chat. Let me know where you're at, what city, what state, what area, whatever you want to use as a descriptor. So we can figure it out. So Vancouver, San Jose, oh my gosh, they're going so fast. Kansas City, Boise, Jacksonville, San Diego, Oh my gosh, they're going too fast. Boston, I see a Vegas. They're just going. Vancouver, Chicago, Queens, Iowa, Seattle, Jacksonville, D.C., Palo Alto, Brooklyn, baby. Craig from Las Vegas. We have people on for Anacortes. There's there's Don from, that's again, I always say this probably. I think you're always saying Anacortes, and I always say that's where my mom lives. Puyallup. Yes, I can speak it correctly. Lancaster, not too far from where I grew up. San Antonio, New Jersey, Dallas. You're, we're obviously accustomed to you asking every time. I just like to know. There's some Lake Havasu. Yes. So he got off the got off the lake and said, "Hey, he's a little sunburnt," and came in and said, "You know what I need? I need the how do you say it? The solve? How do you say something that like cures your sunburn?" Oh, the salve. The salve of tax knowledge to, to cure your sunburn. We don't even charge for it. Uh, Jeff's a doctor, kind of plays one on TV. All right. So we have Troy, Elliot, Christos, Pio, Ian, a bunch of tax professionals here to answer your questions. So if you have questions, don't be shy. Go up there and throw them in the question and answer. And our guys will answer them for you. We will not be sending you a bill for this. We just do it because everybody that's on here from the tax department said that they were tired of doing tax returns and they wanted to answer questions for an hour. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. I think it was something like that. No, no, it's just because they're good people and they always come on. And I'm always surprised at how many really great tax preparers we, we have on. We have uh, tax attorneys, CPAs, even the head of bookkeeping. Troy, who rocks, coming in and answering all your guys' questions. If you have a question that's not on today, just something hits you during the middle of the week and you're like, wow, that's a really good question. By all means, send it in via Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. We answer your questions. If you're getting into something that's very specific to you, 
and needs engagement, then you either become a tax client or a platinum client. Right now, I think your only option is going to be to be a platinum client because tax is absolutely getting hammered around taxes. Yeah. So it would be the platinum feature, 35 bucks a month. Talk to your rep if you want to know how to become a platinum member. This is fast, fun, and educational. We want to give back and help educate. We've been doing these for years now and uh, they're fun. So let's just jump right on in so you can have a good idea of what we're doing. Are there any restrictions on being REP during retirement? That stands for real estate professional. My father is retired from the Postal Service and spends more than enough time materially participating in repair, maintenance, and general work in rentals. We will answer that. Do I have access to my Roth 401k contributions in the way I do Roth IRA contributions before age 59 and a half? What if I separate from my employer and roll the Roth 401k into a Roth IRA? Do I have access to any of these funds before age 59 and a half? So we'll answer that. Good question. This one's a long one. I I picked this one for you just because it said RMD like 60 times. And I said, Jeff loves RMDs, right? I'm 68 now and have an inherited spousal IRA. She was about five years younger than me. I know that I need to start RMDs on my IRA when I hit 72. And do I have to start taking RMDs, required minimum distributions, by the way, that's what RMD stands for, from the inherited spousal IRA when I hit 72? or when she would have turned 72, which would be when I hit 77. So we'll dive into all this when we're answering it, by the way. In settling her estate, I chose not to roll her IRA account into my IRA account so that I could delay taking required minimum distributions from the value in her account as late as possible. This meant that I could delay taking RMDs on her value until she would have turned 70 and a half, at which time I would have turned 50 or 75, almost 76. So we'll dive into that. That one has a lot of pieces. Picked it for that reason. Sometimes I grab really long ones because there's some little nuggets in there that we want to explore. Why would someone invest in a publicly traded partnership? How are they taxed? I don't hear you guys talking about them in any way, either positive or negative. I wonder if a PTP, publicly traded partnership, is a good option to invest in for diversity. We'll go into that. Yeah, absolutely. I have converted my primary home to a short-term rental. I think STR, short-term rental this year. Mm -hmm. means like Airbnb. If I complete 100 plus hours of active participation and more than anyone else, can I deduct the losses from my W-2 wages, my active income? Good question. We'll answer that. And then, uh, was that you? Was Was that your stomach? (laughs) I'm just teasing. (laughs) How should someone set up the business for Airbnb. So that, that kind of goes hand in hand. It's just happened that they were one after the other. Uh, but it's good question. Good question. If you take regular depreciation, then replace window roof and large items such as AC and want to take component depreciation for these items, don't worry, we'll explain that. Do you have to make any adjustment to the regular scheduled depreciation amount? We'll dive into all of this. Can I be a real estate professional by running short-term rentals? Great question. We'll dive into that. Why is it better for the wholesale trust, land trust, to be a C-corp instead of an S-corp? If I am buying land and subdividing on paper only, but doing engineering studies, am I looked at as a dealer? Again, this is only land. Great questions. Uh, and I think we went over one of those, like, I remember in the last two months or so, but it's good, good, good one. 
Uh, I plan to donate my timeshare. I threw the eye in there. I plan to donate my timeshare and does that relieve me of my maintenance fee yearly? Due to COVID, I have not used my week. And I called the company and refused to give me credit or they refused to give me credit for time. And I paid the yearly fee as well. How can I legally make them accountable for this? So I assume you say when you're saying them, you're talking about the charity. So we'll get into that. If previous multifamily owner took appreciated appreciation, so when I, when I see MF, I'm assuming that they're meaning multifamily. So if a previous multifamily owner took appreciated depreciation on 15-year items, how would I know and would that impact the purchase price? So we'll jump into that. How does the IRS track capital gains on sales under two years from acquisition of 5 million homes sell per year in America? That's probably your favorite question. That's my favorite. Why is that your favorite, Jeff? I think it's because... Somebody's saying, how in the heck could the IRS possibly track all this? I always say it. It goes up there with, they don't know whether I sold my Bitcoin. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Cash business. They're, they're running a car wash. They don't know if I got paid anything. Do they? Do they? Yeah. We'll explain this one. And we'll explain what an orange jumpsuit is and how to keep fashion while incarcerated. Right. Are there any restrictions on being a REP during retirement? My father is retired from the postal service. And spent, <laughs> I was going to go farther with it, but I don't know. All right. Postal service that spends more than enough time materially participating in repair, maintenance, and general work on rentals. What say you, Jeff? I'm assuming the father owns property, uh, rental real estate. Mm-hmm. So this is actually the perfect way to do it. If you're retired, you're not working anywhere else. You have all the time in the world to spend on your rental properties, and you're the ideal real estate professional. If you are spending, and in this case, sounds like they're spending a substantial amount of time on mm-hmm. rentals. When does it actually matter? It matters for the two tests, the material, particip- material participation test. Let's uh, even step it back farther. So dad has oh, rentals. Okay. Dad has rentals. Dad makes $20,000 a year on rental. Do we care whether he's a real estate professional? No. Because we're not worried about that. Now, dad has rentals, but dad has losses because of depreciation, and he's able to offset some of his pension, some of his social security, or whatever else, right? So maybe he's got $20,000 of losses. Now, does it matter? It does matter because you have passive losses versus non-passive losses, Mm -hmm. and those passive losses are likely to get suspended. Maybe, maybe not, but... Yeah, so the the easiest way to think about this is passive loss is only offset passive income. There are two times when this isn't the case. And number one is when you are an active participant in real estate and you make less than $100,000 a year. It's technically, it's less than 150 because it phases out between 100 and 150. But if you want the full $25,000 deduction, you just need to be below 100,000. So if dad's retired, and he's making less than 100000 then he doesn't even need to qualify as a real estate professional unless his losses are more than 25000 If the losses are greater than 25000 then he would need to qualify as a real estate professional. And real estate professional, you just mentioned, has two tests. Right. What are the tests? Uh, one is the material participation test, and I don't even know what to call the other test. The other is, so it's 469 <laughs> is the code section, mm-hmm. C7. 
if you need a direct site. And you have a 750 hour plus more than 50%. So it's basically a, are you involved in real estate development, construction, Mm -hmm. sales, brokering? It doesn't matter whether it's yours or somebody else's. It's, am I in those industries? So you could be in construction, you could be a real estate agent. And if you're spending 750 hours and more than half your time, then you'd qualify. So dad here, who's retired, he would need to make sure he's hitting the 750 hours to be a real estate professional. Then you hit the next one. And it depends on whether he's married as to whether he has to hit this or a spouse or a combination of the two. And that is they have to materially participate on their real estate activities. Do they have to do it for each house? No, they can actually aggravate the properties. It's almost impossible to meet that test if you don't aggregate and have multiple properties. You just can't do it. You'll qualify one. Yeah, and that's what the IRS will do is is if you're using an account and doesn't know what the aggregation election is, you're going to end up having to qualify materially for each property. The 750 hours doesn't matter about properties. The 750 hour and a half, even though there's a a court case where they screwed that up, it's been overruled multiple times, not just in courts, but also with the IRS chief counsel. It is 750 hour, half your time, test number one, any real estate. Then they look at your real estate and it's per property. Did you materially participate? Mm -hmm. There's seven tests, seven. So there's the, you meet one of the seven tests. The easiest is if you're managing them yourself. So if he's doing and working on his rentals, you don't have to worry about anything else. If it is somebody else's managing, then you're going to have to do more than a hundred hours total between spouses. So if it's a joint return. All right. So dad is probably going to be okay. So your dad is probably going to be pretty good. He may not even have to worry about it. He may be able to go underneath the active participation test. And you know what? Just throw the scenarios and just make sure he's tracking his time. That's the only thing I would say. Do I have access to my Roth 401k contributions in the way I do Roth IRA contributions before 59 and a half? What if I separate from my employer and roll the Roth 401k into a Roth IRA? Do I have access to any of those funds before 59 and a half? Jeff? The first prohibition that you might run into with the Roth 401k is the employer not allowing in, uh, in-service distributions. Mm-hmm. So if they do, though, you could take it out. You could roll it into the Roth IRA before you're 59 and a half. Mm-hmm. If you do take money out of that Roth IRA that you rolled, you can take out all your contributions tax-free. There's a couple of rules. You, 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 there's a five-year rule, which only affects earnings. There's a 59 and a half year rule, which again, only affects earnings. But if you're pulling that money out that you've just contributed, there's no penalty. There's no tax. Yeah. Your contribution, you can always take out. So it, what Jeff's really putting well is whether it's a Roth IRA or 401k, you can always take out what you put in it without any penalty at all. It's just, you have to put it back in within 60 days or you're, it's gone. It's, it's in your pocket. It's not taxed, but you're going to lose the ability to have tax-free growth on it. Then you look at the growth on your contributions. That you can take out if you're 59 and a half and it's been in there for five years without any penalty, anything whatsoever. There's some ways to get money out earlier than that 
for example, if you are buying your first house, you can get up to a hundred or up to ten thousand dollars. If you need higher education expenses or if you're ill, mm-hmm. there's a few exceptions to the general rule. But just remember, you can always take out your contribution. So I tell young people, especially, use it as a savings account. You know, put your money in there and hope you never need it. But if you did, you just take out the whatever you put in there. The growth you might want to let ride. And if you take it out early, what's the penalty? 10%. 10% plus it's taxable, right? Right. So if I put in $10,000 over a couple of years and it grows to 15, I can always take my 10,000 out without a penalty. The $5,000 of growth, I may have to pay a 10% penalty. So 500 bucks plus it's taxable. So talking about that five-year rule, we'll use your example that I put. I have $15,000 in my Roth 401k. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, I've only contributed 10000 but I've rolled that to my Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. That five-year clock doesn't start ticking until it hits a Roth IRA. So if you don't have any Roth I, other Roth IRAs, your clock hasn't started ticking just because you have it in the Roth 401 Yeah, any, any Roth, and it'll be on the growth on that. Hey, uh, real quick, Patty, I'll, I'll answer. I think I think I see a Catherine who had a question on the material participation. I'll get into that. And also somebody's asking a question on this one, which is, can I borrow against my Roth? No. No. That's only for traditional funds. And you can never borrow against an IRA. It's only a 401k defined benefit plan, you know, like a pension, never an IRA. There were some rules under uh, the CARES Act that allow you to take early contributions and pay them back over a three-year period. Uh, That's gone now. Yep. But... So like if you'd taken money out last year, there's a good chance that you have a period of time to, to A, to recognize it and B, pay it back and take the deduction again. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to mention with, with a five-year rule, another weird thing is mm-hmm. that clock starts from the first time you contribute to a Roth IRA or put money in a Roth IRA. So if you l- later open other accounts or put more money in, that clock has already st- started ticking with your first Roth IRA. So for the five-year? Yeah, for the mm-hmm. five-year rule. What if you only put a thousand dollars in and then, and then put another five in? Yeah, you're good. You're good. Yep. So it is fifty-nine and a half in five years. All right. So somebody asked a question. I think it's worthwhile answering when we're talking about material participation on this one. So this is dad. Let's say dad and mom are both alive and married, filing jointly. They can add up their time for material participation. So somebody says, "Can you clarify one hundred hours for married couple?" if they're not managing their own properties. Material participation is a different test. It's once I aggregate all my activities together, it's whatever I'm using for material participation on that property. If I'm not managing my own properties, if I'm not managing them, I'm using another manager, I'm still gonna add my material participation. And that's fairly common, especially if you have properties in another state, you'll have somebody doing your Airbnb, but you're going there and you're doing repairs, you're going there and fixing it up. You might be going there and you know and 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 working in other manners, doing the finances with on that particular property with the property manager. You may be just coming to town, even looking and, and looking over your investment. The question is, can I do investor activities at the same time? And the only way you can add in your investor activities to material participation is if you're managing your properties, is my understanding. So if you're doing just if you're looking for new properties and things like that, as long as you're managing your own property and you're doing those types of activities, 
it could potentially be material participation, but we don't really see it. Like usually you're, you're blowing the material participation out of the water. It's like two people think about it. You're spending a weekend going in and doing work. That's a lot of hours that you guys are getting. Mm-hmm. And usually you're doing it quarterly or at least twice, three times a year. You're going to, you're going to get over that hundred hour mark and it just has to be more than the property manager spent. So just make sure you're keeping records of it. All right. Toby's being I'll go back one. What? No, we did. Oh, good. did we do that one? Yeah. Okay. I I went backwards just because gotcha. there was a question, and I I'm a sucker for answering questions. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, Asset protection workshop. We have another one coming up on August 28th. There's Mr. Coons talking about real estate tax and asset protection workshop. If you guys like this information and you want to learn more, free workshop. We do it all day on a Saturday. Usually it says nine to five, but usually we're done at four. The reason being is because we don't want to kill you. <laughs> so we're going to do that. Here we go. Register for free tax and asset protection workshop, aba.link forward slash AP. All right. I am 68 now and have an inherited spousal IRA. She was five years younger than me. I'm so sorry you lost your spouse, number one. I know that I need to start required minimum just required minimum distributions on my IRA when I hit 72. That's the new rule under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, right? And Secure Act. Mm-hmm. When do I have to start taking RMDs from the inherited spousal IRA when I hit 72 or when she would have turned 72, which would be when I hit 77? In settling her estate, I chose not to roll her IRA account into my IRA account so that I could delay taking RMD distributions from the value in her account as late as possible. It's called a stretch. This meant that I could delay taking RMDs on her value until she would have turned 70 and a half, uh, with really 72 now, at which time I would have turned 50 or 75. It would have really, you'd be close to 77. What do you say to this individual? I'll be honest. I have not worked with the stretch IRAs at all. It's complicated. I'll just tell you that much. Because the old rules were, if she had not started taking distributions of any kind, either what they call substantial equal payments or mm-hmm. her own RMDs, then the rules, all the rules would apply only to you and not to your, your spouse's age or anything. Correct. You would have stretched it out and it doesn't change. They changed it for everybody else but you, so long as you don't roll it into your account. If you roll it into your account, then it's your funds. It's, it's applying to you. You don't have to worry about something in the SECURE Act, which says that you have to take all the distributions out within 10 years. If it's non-spouse and you inherit an IRA from somebody else, you have 10 years to take all the money out. That is not the case on a spousal uh, IRA. So you really, you have a few different flavors. Uh, and I'm just going to hit two of them. You rolled into yours. Now it's yours. It's, it's based off of your schedule. So it's when you hit 72. Or you leave it in her name as you as the beneficiary. So it's still her IRA and it's for your benefit. And you you would use her numbers. Since she is younger than you, you would use her numbers. And it sounds like that's what you did. And the way it's going to work is you would be required to take minimum distributions when she hit by, it would be uh, April of the year following her hitting 72. And so if you're five years older, it would be the April following her hitting 70, 72, which would be year 77, possibly 78, depending on when your birthday is. 
So you're going to get more time out of it. I don't want to dive into any more of the complexity because it's so fact driven, but just know that when it's a spouse, it's different rules. When it's non-spouse, then it's always like, Hey, if it's a Roth, you can always just take the money out. If it's a traditional, you could take the money out, but it's taxable to you. You don't have the 10% penalty. If it's traditional, I can, in its spouse, then I could just be a beneficiary of it and use their age for the required minimum distributions, assuming that they haven't already started and that there weren't equal distributions under 72T being taken, or I just roll it into my account and nix it. And then I don't have to worry about the 10 hour, the, the 10 years. I just take it over my lifetime. Well, one thing about the RMDs to be aware of is you can aggregate RMDs if they're the same type of investment. So you could aggregate all your IRAs mm-hmm. and do one RMD from one of your accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all your accounts all together. Your accounts. Yeah, even if you're a beneficiary. Uh, 401k, 403bs, I think are the same way. 401ks, you have to take an RMD from each account that you have. Inherited IRAs, you can also aggregate if you have multiple inherited IRAs. And you can give them to charity if you want up to $100,000 mm-hmm. and just directly. Uh, it says, if my husband is older than me and starts taking distributions out of the IRA and I inherit, am I forced to take the distributions even though I'm not 72? I believe so. Yes. Or you just take it all. If it's a, Again, if it's a Roth, you don't have anything to worry about. If it's non-Roth, the reason you want it in there is so it continues to grow tax deferred. You could always take the money out, though, and just pay the tax, tear the Band-Aid off. But I like the tax benefits, so I'd understand why other people do, too. Uh, somebody asked, is it worth converting an IRA to a Roth after 59 and a half? What I'm going to say, it depends on the year of the conversion. If I have a whole bunch of losses, then I'm probably going to convert. If I don't, then I'm probably not. If I'm in a high tax bracket, it makes no sense to convert because it's going to, I'm going to be paying a pretty good chunk of change and I don't have enough time to, to make it up. So the, the, the rule of a Roth is if your tax bracket's going to be higher when you retire, do the Roth. If it's going to be lower when you retire, do traditional. And that's just math. I would have to spell it out for you. It takes about 30 years to break even on a on the conversion if if your tax bracket's going down. So if you're in a really low tax bracket, you have some events that, hey, I'm able to take some losses. Uh, for example, if we have losses that would ordinarily be something that we'd have to carry forward, convert some money, make some tax. And you don't have to convert at all. You can convert a little at a time. Yeah. So, you know, we look at this, like uh, there was this year, we can't carry back business losses, ordinary mm-hmm. losses anymore. So under the CARES Act, it gave us three years to carry back losses. So if you have a business and you lose money, this might be the year where, hey, I had a really crappy year. COVID's beating me over the head. I got a restaurant. I'm getting kicked in the shin. This is the year to convert because you're not going to like use up all that deduction because you don't really want to carry it forward. And you just talk to us. We'll, we'll map it out for you. We'll make it clear for you guys. We'll actually give you the numbers. So I always tell people there's three rules of anything financial. Calculate, calculate, calculate. Why would someone invest in a publicly traded <clears throat> partnership? Bad taste is timeless. No, I'm sorry. How are they taxed? I don't hear you guys talking about them in a way either positive or negative. I wonder if a PTP is a good option to invest in for diversity. Jeff. I think the reason we don't talk about them is we don't talk about investments in general um, as mm-hmm. far as whether this is a good investment or a bad investment. 
Where I'm often most see publicly traded partnership shoes is in the energy sector, oil and gas. So how are they taxed? There's a carve out for publicly traded partnerships that say, yes, the loss is kind of passive, but you can't take those losses as long as you hold that entity. As soon as you get rid of that partnership, that PTP, that's when you get to recognize your losses. They can be good cash flows. You just have to be careful what you're looking at. I've seen some hedge funds that are PTPs. They can be complex. As far as taxation, there's really nothing particularly special about it. You have to look at it from an investment point of view, not the tax point of view. Right. So a publicly traded partnership, the reason people do them is if it's going to be holding passive assets that are going to flow through or investment assets, portfolio income, really. Like if, if I want to get technical, chances are it's going to be things that are kicking down dividends, things that are kicking down interest, capital gains, maybe rents. And the reason that they're doing it is because there's only one level of taxation, and that is with the shareholder or the uh, the, the partner. Mm-hmm. The problem that you have is you're going to have a tax nightmare and your accountant's going to hate you because you have inside basis, outside basis. Like Jeff said, there's special rules. You get a K-1 and you're going to get the tax documents that are done on year end. So you're going to be getting different documents throughout the year and your accountant's going to have to make light, you know, figure out what the heck's going on. Are they fun to prepare? They're not bad. I don't mind them. Uh, but like you said, if uh, if I paid $100,000 for my PTP interest and mm-hmm. hold it for five years, my cost is no longer $100,000 because of those K-1s. I'm right. recognizing income or possibly losses. And somebody says, and the tax documents don't arrive until June each year. Yeah, they're, they're coming all throughout the year. It's, mm-hmm. like a, it's like a joy of having partners that you can't control. But what you just said is actually spot on. Again, the people that do them is because they want to treat it kind of like a syndication, but it's publicly traded. Uh, the other downside of these things are they're usually in lots of states that may want to come after you for state filings for very little money. It makes money in a particular state. Then either it's doing a, con- con- what is it, a consolidated return? What's the, what's oh, the term? Um, What's the term of art for it when they're doing one tax and it, and it pays the state taxes? Uh, compound return. No, it's not a compound either. Is it a consolidated? No, it's not consolidated. It's, it's not compound. It, and it begins with a C. Anyway, maybe one of the accountants. And California charges $800 per year in fees. Composite. There we go. Composite. Thank you. Yeah. Sean, he gets a star. So we got some smart people out there. Thank you, Sean, because we're, we're having brain cramps. Yeah. All right. So, but yeah, you had a layer of complexity. So if you're just doing it as a, Hey, I just kind of want to put a little bit of money in one and then it's usually a pain in the katush. If you're doing it because it's actually a specific investment you want, then the complexity is probably worth it if you're being pretty targeted. But uh, I don't really have a positive or a negative opinion. They're just a little bit different. And what Jeff said, by the way, what he's spot on about is, If you're taking distributions out of a partnership, it lowers your basis. So when you sell it, you have to recognize that as tax. And everybody's like, ah, you know, I bought it for 100 and I sold it for 200. Yep. Your basis is getting adjusted as those distributions are coming out. Uh, The last PTP I was in was before oil collapsed. 
and I was getting really good dividends out of it, mm-hmm. really good capital gain dividends out. But like you said, it did adjust it. So there is, there is, they do have their place in the world. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I don't, I'm not negative on them, but they do, you want to walk in with your eyes open. Somebody asked, did Toby say that you can't carry over losses anymore? No, Toby did not say that. Toby said you can't carry them back. So it used to be, it's like last year, if you had $100,000 of losses, if it was for 2020, we could carry it back to 2015. Get your taxes back that you paid in 2015, use it all up to carry it to 2016, use it up, carry it to 2017, carry you know, and you, it was great. It was big in tax. You're like, we're getting back some of the taxes that we paid. That was the CARES Act. Now it's gone again and we just carry forward. But you have an indefinite period of time that you can carry it forward. It used to be you could carry back three years, carry forward 20. And now it is, you can just carry it forward, but you're limited to 80% of your business income in any particular year when you yep. carry forward. Clear as mud, right? So we'll never completely wipe out your business income anymore. No, it, that's kind of stinky. That's like, I don't like that. Somebody says, my question is, if Anderson Advisors has made a video showing the process of selling your primary home to an S-Corp while still leasing it is a way you can use 121. Yeah, Clint actually did one. I've done one, I believe. I'm teaching it actually, what's today? Tuesday? Tuesday. On Thursday to a bunch of lawyers for continuing education on 121. It's all about that. But what it is, is you can actually double up 121 and 1031. A lot of times we're talking about just houses that have run away in value and you don't want to pay the tax on it. So like you're up a million bucks, you got a $250,000 exclusion or a $500,000 exclusion. We can, we can do a 1031. But also if you have part of your house that's been a home office where you're recapturing depreciation, or if you had a separate unit that was only for running an office and you were doing it as a sole proprietor where that thing dinged you. So there's a there, there's a way to double up on it. It's actually, oh, let me see if I can remember. I remember it was 2005-14 is the revenue procedure. 200, yeah, 2005-14 is the revenue procedure that says you can do that. So your accountant, when they tell you that you're full of doohickey, you can just point them straight to it. Why that stuck in my head, nobody knows. Some of those numbers just get wedged in there and then nothing else can get in. I can't remember composite, but I can remember a silly rev proc that I read 15 years ago. I can't remember what day it was. We're sitting in tax Tuesday. I'm telling you. Short-term memory loss. Jeff's. Old-timer's disease. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, <laughs> I've converted my primary home to a single, or sure, a short-term rental this year. If I complete 100 hours plus of, of service of active participation, it's actually material participation, and more than anyone else, can I deduct the losses from my W-2 wages, active income? Jeff. Yes, if you're materially participating in your short-term rental, and as we talked before, it's not it's a rental, but it's not. So uh, if it's seven days or less, it's considered non-passive income. And because of that, if you are materially participating- Oh, I love this one. You're going to contradict me. I'm going to make so much fun of you. Okay. I'm not going to contradict you. I'm just going to say that you're making so many assumptions that they said short-term rental. How many people have you met that said, hey, I have short-term rentals and then actually were short-term rentals? True. (laughs) I'm doing a short-term rental. I'm renting it out at a month at a time. You can hit me now. there's, There's three levels. There's the seven days or less with services. 
there's 30 days or less with substantial services and 30 uh, days or more with sub, uh, with extraordinary services. Mm-hmm. Those are what qualify you for that potential to make it non-rental income. Then you go and you look at it and you say, oh, shoot, uh, am I materially participating? So if it's not rental income and it's ordinary uh, non-passive income, or if it's just ordinary income, am I materially participating? And the reason this is important is because Jeff and I, like I always use the analogy that Jeff opens up the pizza shop and I'm a silent owner. Mm-hmm. I'm not materially participating. Jeff is. If there's losses, it comes the losses that get handed down to me, I can't write off unless there's other passive income because I did not materially participate. So my income from being a, a silent partner is different than his, which if he had the pizza shop and he's running it, he's a material participant. So when you look at your primary home, the question is, is it rental income? And if not, did you actively immaterially participate? They actually, I'm using active now. It's material participation. Did you materially participate? So under the facts that you've given, chances are you could use those losses, in, in, including accelerated depreciation against your W-2. However, it's no longer rental income. So you cannot use those hours of material participation towards any other real estate activities you have, only on that particular activity. It's not rental activity. So that could cause you to lose real estate professional status, Mm -hmm. for example. So if this is all you're doing and you took a house and you made it into a short-term rental and you're able to accelerate the if I'm able to accelerate the depreciation and take a big one, big loss this year, it'd be great to offset my W-2 wages. Now, caveat, if we get you too low, you're not going to qualify for loans. It's going to be really difficult for you to acquire more real estate. You're going into lower tax brackets. Like I'm fine with big deductions at 37%. I'm not so fine at 12%. Like why are we, why are we wiping out 12% tax? Like I'd climb over glass for 12% tax. Most investors would at some point. So don't screw that up. I would just say, hey, you know what? I don't need to take it all in one year. Maybe I'm spreading it out over a period of time. And maybe I don't want to use it at all because I need my wages. So this material participation test really is important here. If you meet that test, it's better than the rental deductions. If you don't meet that test, it's actually worse than your rental losses. Mm Mm-hmm. So, it could be. Yeah. Because, because you have the passive losses that you can't and call real estate. Correct. And you lose your, your real estate professional status when you're grabbing them all together. Mm-hmm. And it can get, yeah, absolutely. So somebody says examples of materially participating. Again, there's, there's two categories that we always look at. There's the real estate professional side where it says, am I involved in a real estate business with more than 50% of my time? And that is, am I involved in the development, redevelopment, construction, sale, brokering of real estate? And in order for that hour, for those hours to qualify, I don't have to be working on my stuff. I just have to be more than a 5% owner of the business that's doing it. So I could be a real estate agent and knock that one out. For the material participation, it's a combination of spouses. So if Jeff and I were married, it would be our time together. And there's seven different tests. And the easiest one is I self-manage. Then I don't even have to keep track of my hours. Mm -hmm. Or if somebody else is managing your properties, meaning engaging in the activities with the tenants, 
screening them, collecting rents, all that stuff, then I would have to do more than 100 hours and more time than them. If I don't want to have to worry about more time than then, I need to hit 500 hours total. And it's per property unless I treat them all as one. I know that some of you guys are like, oh, crud. What did he just say? That's why you come to our classes and we'll teach you. Plus, you just talk to our people. They're good at it. All right. How should someone set up the business for Airbnb? So this is a great segue. These things are uh, kissing cousin questions. My favorite still is um, you have a property. And and I'm going to start this off by saying this is not your principal residence that you're Airbnb in. But if you have a separate property, Mm -hmm. you rent that property to your corporation uh, as a long-term rental. Mm Mm-hmm. And then have that corporation do the Airbnb work. So what Jeff is really well putting is is for somebody who is aggregating their real estate activities with other rentals, and you're going to qualify as a real estate professional, the appropriate structure would be to make sure that Airbnb is considered a rental for your purposes by renting it to your corporation, having your corporation act as the host. So the host would be paying on a monthly basis. Everybody's paying the host on a short-term basis so that it's still rental income. If you only have an Airbnb or all you do is Airbnb and you have substantial income. So this is, for example, a uh, medical professional and they're bringing in $750,000 a year and they own you know, a duplex that they Airbnb. They should self-manage that at least in the year that they do the accelerated depreciation because they can unlock that as non-rental income, ordinary income, and convert it into into ordinary loss with that depreciation, which will offset their W-2 income, their 1099 income, anything like that. That's how that works. But there's a flip side to it. If you make money and you're materially participating, you're going to have social security tax on that. So there's two sides that we look at. We're talking about the loss, but if you're making money at Airbnb, it might make sense to do the corporation as well to avoid getting hit with self-employment tax and all the income if you're making a bunch of money. We have clients that are clearing $300,000 a year, for example. I'd much rather that be rental income or a good chunk of it, mix it up and avoid some of that pain of the um, self-employment tax on it. Anyway, so... Now we're back into q and I'm just going to, somebody says, uh, did you just say you and Jeff are married? No, I'm saying hypothetically, Jeff and I are not married. He's not my type. It's hurtful. Hurtful. All right. If you take regular depreciation, then replace windows, roof, and other large items such as AC and want to take component depreciation for those items, do you have to make any adjustment to the regular scheduled depreciation amount? Sounds like we're talking cost segregation here. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most of the items you named are not subject to the shorter lives. They're all subject to 27 and a half year lives. If you're replacing windows, replacing the roof, not repairing the roof, replacing the roof, mm-hmm. other large items such as AC. So you're putting a new AC unit outside the house. HVAC, I believe, does it, does it's HVAC? A, it's only for commercial. Oh, commercial HVAC. So this is, let's just, so we're assuming this is residential. But, but if, yeah, commercial HVAC, I think, has a 15-year life now, which 15-year life subject to bonus depreciation. Anything less than 20 years of, of, of depreciable life, we can take in one year under 168K this year. When they say regular depreciation, 
they're talking about either 27 and a half or 39 years, depending on whether it's residential property or non-residential property. You don't have to keep that. You could elect out of that with a change of accounting election and get a cost segregation engineering study that says, here's all the pieces of the building. Some of it's going to be five-year property. The best example I can give you is carpeting. Some of it's going to be like 15-year property, like sidewalks, fences, the shrubbery, all that. Swimming pool. Swimming pool. You want to ride off a sw- Jeff wants to ride off a swimming pool. You would have a swimming pool in a rental. <laughs> you think there's some liability there? Just a tiny little bit, unless you had a lot of insurance. Maybe if you're going to get like a bunch of money for it. But all of those items could be accelerated and written off faster than the 27 and a half years or the 39 years. So there's there's a tax reason to do it. Um, usually it's just playing with the numbers. So to, yeah, to answer your question, do I make adjustments? You pretty much adjust everything when you do these cost segregations and do this component depreciation where you're pulling items out, maybe your cabinets, all the items Toby just talked about. And they're going to adjust those numbers and, and reclassify them. Uh, like we use cost segregation authority. Mm-hmm. Cost uh, authority. They give us a report that says what all the items are and how much depreciation they have and how much past depreciation they should have. And all it gets reconciled when you do that, what's called a change of accounting method. It's form 3115 to make that adjustment for this cost segregation. If you want to learn more about that, A, we, we do discuss it quite often during the tax and asset protection workshop in brief set, but we go into great detail in a couple of the webinars. You can just look on our website. And uh, if it's the one I taught with with Eric Oliver from Cost Seg Authority, Mm -hmm. we go through the examples and we break down a bunch of actual cost segs that we've done and you can see them. Uh, I do a lot of examples even during the the tax and asset protection workshop, but it's always great to actually see the numbers and see this is what they were going to have. This is what they got afterwards. And this is the impact from a tax standpoint at their tax bracket. So when you see somebody's putting an extra $40,000 in their pocket in actual dollars and tax dollars, not deduction, but actual dollars, then it usually is like, whoa, well, that's a, yeah, it's worth it for me. I'll spend 2,500 or whatever it is to, to do the study and get it done because I'm gonna have a whole bunch of cash in my pocket. I can go out and buy more real estate. Can I be a real estate professional by running short-term rentals, Jeff? No, you cannot. Because, well, this goes back to... I love these questions. I grab these questions just to torment Jeff. Okay, remember all that stuff Toby said about the earlier short-term rental? If these are true short-term rentals, where they're less than seven days or less than 30 days of substantial services, they're going to be carved out of your rental activities. They're, they're considered trades or businesses. It's as if you're running a hotel mm-hmm. or a residence inn or something like that. So those are not rentals. They do not qualify you to be a real estate professional. From a standpoint of the 750 hours, would that be true? I would think they would count with the 750 hours. You are managing property. Yeah, I guess you would. So from for a real estate professional, remember that there's 750 hours plus 50% of your time. And there's also the material participation. Now, where I see this being a problem is if I have true rentals, and short-term rentals, this could hurt my real estate professional. It's actually, there's a couple cases where it did just that. Somebody had six rentals, three of them were short-term. They aggregated all six together 
And the court said short-term rentals are not rental. It was seven days or less with services. They were cleaning in between and they were providing linens and they had some foods in there and coffee and all this stuff that you wouldn't normally give a tenant. So it was with services. It was no longer rental income. It was ordinary income. And so the court said, well, that activity is no longer rental income. It's no longer part of 469. So then when you do the next test, which is, all right, did you materially participate on, you have to do each property, remember, but I could aggregate all my rental activities together as one economic unit. Now you have a problem because you can't count those. And that's actually been, there's a couple cases where they lost because they were playing the, I'm going to be the Airbnb king and screwed up, screwed up the real estate professional status. The way around this, Jeff mentioned it earlier, is you rent all, like, let's say you had three Airbnbs and three long-term rentals. You want six long-term rentals. Yeah, I'm back to using my fingers again. You want six long-term rentals. So what you would do is lease long to your corporation and let it do the hosting. And so you'd have a month to month. So now you'd have six properties that all are long-term rentals. When do you make that decision? It's usually a wise idea to talk to your accountant and make sure you have a plan of attack so that you don't screw something up that's going to leave a mark. Also, you may say, hey, you know what? I don't want seven days with services. How do I avoid it? All right. Let's make sure that you're always doing two weeks. Then as long as it's not substantial services, you could do the cleaning. You could Mm -hmm. do potentially linen. But as long as you're not doing concierge and feed them every day, you're going to be fine. Uh, Hey, if you like this sort of stuff, follow us on social media. It's aba.link forward slash your favorite social media. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, all of them. You can see our, uh, we have a lot of content out there, guys. We are truly education-based. We want to give as much information as possible so you can make really good decisions. We love our clients to be prosperous because there's really, there's no tax problems that we can help solve if you're not making money. Somebody says, why is it better for the wholesale land trust, wholesale trust, land trust to be a C-corp instead of an S-corp? I am buying land and subdividing on paper only, but doing engineering studies, et cetera. I'm looking, am I looked at as a dealer? Again, this is only land. I didn't have a good answer for this. So I'm interested to see what you have to say. Yeah. So if you are a dealer, you're in the, you're in the business of buying and selling real estate. So you buy real estate to sell it. There's a section in the code. I want to say 1236 or 1237. I forget where if you subdivide land without adding substantial value to it, and you've held that land for at least five years, and you're not a dealer, then that doesn't qualify towards your dealer activity. So if you're just buying land and holding it for a long period of time and subdividing it, it's going to be treated as a capital asset until you cross over to six deals in a year. And then when you hit six deals, 5% of that becomes ordinary income. This is like, it's just one of those weird things that I don't even care about the 5% because honestly, the transaction costs, we'll just, we'll use those expenses to offset the ordinary income first. So like, I really don't care. But what I do care about is, are you a dealer? Because if you're a dealer, then there's no exceptions for you. So I see this all the time. People say, oh, I flip land, but I'm in this exception. And I'm like, well, the exception has a bunch of rules. You violated this one, this one, this one. <laughs> Well, I didn't know there was rules. Yeah, and they're hard. 
so we put it in a corporation instead so you do not become a dealer. And the reason we do that is because it's active, ordinary income. We don't want you to get hit with the self-employment tax. So we use the S-corp. You take a small salary, you could defer it all into a 401k. The rest of it comes out to you as not subject to self-employment tax, social security, old age disability survivors, whatever you want to call it, FICA. It's all the same thing. It's, it's that extra 15.3% tax. Why would you use the C-corp instead? You might, if, if I didn't want the income to flow on to me, if I didn't need the money, and I was in a high enough tax bracket, I might say, hey, you know what, just leave it in the C-Corp. Let it pay tax at 21%. Yeah, and, and that's what I wasn't sure about because if the S-Corp did have dealer status, that does not flow through to the shareholders, correct? If the if the S-Corporation is considered a dealer, that does not necessarily hit the, the shareholders. It, would, it wouldn't contaminate you as a dealer, right, right. correct, but the income would still be ordinary income. So the other question I had was, the engineering studies, mm -hmm. does that cause any issues here? Subdividing without more is not. Then they used a few examples. I believe you could even put in roads. 1237 is the section. Somebody was kind enough to pull it up. Thanks, Joseph. And it basically gives you some things that you could do. Uh, if I put it up here, I could look. Let's see. Yeah, I don't, I, I'd have to go read it. But there's mm -hmm. subdividing without more is not going to get you. It's not going to rise to the level of substantial improvement. If you put in sewer and things like that, yeah, you're probably going to be ordinary income no matter what. But there's always a workaround, guys. This is the thing. So even the flippers in the world, like a lot of times you'll see somebody doing a big development and they want to lock in their gain for, for capital gains before they do the development. So maybe they, they held some property for quite a few years and they want to do a big development on it. Sell it. Lock in your capital gains, do an installment sale, then do the improvement and lock it into a corporation. If you do the corporation, you say like, hey, now I'm regretting that I did this. I'd rather keep it long term. You, you do the opposite. You develop it in the corporation and then sell it at fair market value over a long period of time to somebody else. Now, technically, you can't do an installment sale. You're going to have to recognize all that income, but you're recognizing it through the corporation to be able to give us some options to shelter some of that income from hitting you. So uh, it's always going to be a weighing test, whether it's going to be the S or the C Corp. I think that for the most part, we're saying don't do any harm. So use the S because it's going to flow down to you regardless. Uh, but sometimes I'm going to use a C. Uh, it all depends on your scenario. There's no one size fits all on that one. So it's a conversation that you have with the accountant saying, hey, do you need the money? If you don't need the money, are you in a high tax bracket? Is that going to stay or is that going to go away? And hey, maybe we'll let it be in a C-Corp because we know we have a bunch of expenses. Maybe you're doing a reimbursement for medical, dental, vision, whatever. And you say, hey, you know, we're going to eat that away over the years. So we have a one-time kind of tax hit at the corporate level, but we know we're going we're gonna to offset that at some point. So anyway, I know we're going a little, look at that, it's four o'clock. Hmm. I plan to donate my paid time share and does that relieve me of my maintenance year uh, fee yearly? Due to COVID, I have not used my week and I called the company and refused to give me, and they refused to give me credit for the time and I paid the yearly fee as well. How can I legally make them accountable for this? Timeshares. Timeshares. Um, Jeff loves timeshares. He's visualizing being on the beach there, there, or there, wherever it might be. There are two types of timeshares. There's mm -hmm. the right to use timeshare and there's the for deed timeshare. Mm-hmm. 
when you donate a 4D timeshare, meaning you actually have title to that timeshare, that has value, possibly. You're actually contributing the title to your, your nonprofit. Now, the problem with that is, yeah, you could have a charitable contribution. However, many of these timeshares are trying to be sold for like a buck mm. and they still can't get rid of them. That's because they come with the liability. Exactly. Now, some of these, uh, the right to use timeshare, in my opinion, you don't own anything. IRS kind of shares this opinion, which is why you can't deduct mortgage interest on a timeshare. You don't own the property. Mm-hmm. Some nonprofits will take these. Uh, some will take the others. They're either going to use them personally or use them within the entity, or they're going to try to sell them off through mm-hmm. a third party. Mm-hmm. So... Before you ever do the, the, the donation, and it sounds like you already have, you, you need to make sure you know who is taking over, who now has responsibility for this. There's charities that'll take them, guys. Whenever somebody gives an asset, what are the requirements? Let's just say that it's a timeshare that is worth uh, $10,000. Mm-hmm. What are the requirements to take that deduction? And are there any adjusted gross income limits that we have to be worried about? The first test would be what is the fair market value? You have to get an appraisal of the of the timeshare. So they're going to look at the value of it minus any liabilities that come along with it. If there's debt, for example, or if there's a liability like these continued fees, it's going to adjust the fair market value. For me, the the, the biggest value behind donating a timeshare is to get out of that maintenance fee liability. It's um, going to become the the liability. Of the organization that takes it over. Yes. Charities will take these. Charities will bid them out and use them. Like people will go to the silent auctions and get the the one week and such and such. That's how they're going to use them. They're going to use them to generate income. And they're going to hope that there's a big enough chunk of money that's coming in. Because like, let's say Jeff goes in and there's a week in Barbados. Mm-hmm. And Jeff goes nuts because he wants to do good for all the little kids and the the little league or whatever it is that that's the charity. Maybe it's American Red Cross. Maybe it's Haitian relief because we had these horrible earthquakes, whatever the case. And Jeff says, I'll pay $2,500 for that. That's actually a pretty good price, right? But let's say that the fair market value for that week is $2,000. Jeff isn't going to get a deduction for $2,500. He's going to get a deduction for 25 minus the actual fair market value of what he received. He got something in return. If Jeff bid $5,000 and the value of that week was 2000 The charity would get $5,000. Jeff would get a 5000 minus 2000 deduction against his adjusted gross income on a Schedule A. If I give the charity a timeshare, it's going to be the fair market value of that timeshare, calculating in any of the liabilities that come along with it. Hopefully, it's a very good positive number. And then I'm going to deduct that against my adjusted gross income, depending on how long I I owned it, whether it went up and down in value is going to dictate whether it's going to be an appreciated asset and subject to the 30% rule or whether it's going to be the 60% rule. If you look into this, just do a Google search. There's lots of people scamming, uh, saying they'll take your timeshare for donation. So you need to be really careful. In this case, it says, how can I legally make them accountable for this? 
Can you pull that donation back if they haven't taken over? It, when you deed it over, they assume responsibility. And most charities will have a, they're going to do the paperwork. So you're going to basically run it through almost a, basically an escrow. Or they're going to sign off and say it is now my property, which means they assume the liabilities that go along with that property. So you don't just deed it and say, here you go. You actually have them and work with their donation department saying, hey, we have to execute this as a transfer. You go to a title company and you make sure it's done the correct way. If it's a non-titled timeshare, I think you're going to have a lot of trouble getting any value out of it, honestly. So uh, that may not even be worth dinking around with. But again, most major charities will accept these. The question is, will they accept yours based off of the facts? Like they may say, there's no way in heck I'm ever going to take this this particular timeshare because it's more trouble than it's worth and it's more expensive than, in which case they'll just tell you, no, we don't want it. It's like going down to the, uh, I've done this. You go down to the, uh, to the local thrift store or whatnot and you show them TVs. I didn't know they didn't want TVs. We had a whole bunch of TVs. So I go down with TVs and like, we don't take TVs. And like, they're, they're really nice TVs. We're like, you don't want a bunch of TVs. We don't take TVs. You know, like sometimes they do that and you're going to be annoyed. So you just find, you go someplace where they do YouTube. Hey guys, you can always check out a whole bunch of good content on YouTube. My partner Clint has a great real estate channel. We have a whole bunch of stuff on ours on uh, aba.link forward slash YouTube if you like this sort of thing, chances are we did a video on it at some point. This is so much fun. I'm watching some of the questions going back with Elliot. And I like Danae. She's like asking some, <laughs> I'm trying not to be obtuse. I love that. That's one of my favorite words. If previous multifamily owner took accelerated depreciation on 15-year items. So the owner of the property before you accelerated their depreciation. Instead of waiting 39 years or 27 and a half years, they wrote it all off in one year. How would I know and would that impact purchase price? Uh, the only way I know to say this is you don't care. That's a good way. Uh, what the previous owner did is, doesn't impact you in any way, shape, or form. Once you purchase that property, everything starts over. You know looking at their balance sheet. Because if they owed it, like if they owned it for five years and they have it, huge chunk of depreciation. You'd say, what happened here? Did you retire something? Did your roof go bad? Like what's going on here? Oh, we accelerated a bunch of the components. You don't care. If, if they did a cost segregation last year, the year before they sold it and wrote off a whole bunch of stuff, you could do the same thing in the year that you purchase it. Yeah. It doesn't matter to you. It does impact them because yes. if they, if, if they sell it within the useful life, they're going to have ordinary income. So if I depreciated a 15-year item and I've only owned it for five years, I'm going to have to recognize 10 years of the 15 back as ordinary income. So they're going to have a little bit of a tax hit. So yeah, the only way I see it really affecting them is uh, they may want, want a higher price because they have taxes to pay. Yeah. Oh, you know, what you're going to say is do a 1031 exchange, knucklehead. And you say it just like that. All right. How does the IRS track... Capital gains on sales under two years from acquisition <clears throat> if 5 million homes sell per year in America. Have you seen those helicopters flying over your house? <laughs> We're just seeing if you've sold it. Has he sold it yet? No, he hasn't sold it. Right. Um, IRS is the data tracking entity of all time. Well, maybe the KGB. 
But there, there's a couple ways they track it. Well, one way is not always, but often uh, when you sell a house, they issue a Form 1099-S, which goes to the IRS. Unless you said, hey, I am ex- I'm exempt from paying any taxes on it because I'm within my two years, or excuse me, I've owned it for two years out of the last five, and I, I qualify for a, a 121 exclusion. Otherwise, you're required to report all of your income. That's going on. What's the form? It's like, what's the capital gains form for the sale of real estate? Oh, 4797? Yeah. Oh, no, your personal residence goes on Schedule D. Goes on Schedule D. Oh, 8949. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, you're going to have to report it. Otherwise, you're saying, hey, it's not taxable because it's exempt. Uh, California, you have kind of a different problem because... The FTB gets notice of every single real estate sale in the state. And they're going to look at your return. And they require withholding. Not very nice. You'll get it back if you're exempt, but they're going to take the money. So, I mean, there's a reporting requirement on all real estate unless unless you meet one of the exclusions and one of the exemptions. And, for example, if they can't... If they don't know you're a U.S. citizen, then there's going to be a 28% withholding. A lot of people don't realize this. When you're signing all those documents, that's a lot of times what title is doing. All right, Jeff, where do you live? U.S. citizen. All right. You know, you're signing off here that, you know, that this on the proceeds, this was a primary residence and you're claiming a 121. Like they're, they're getting themselves off the hook so they don't have a reporting requirement. Otherwise, they're going to report you. And if they report you, then you just recognize it and then say it's a 121 exclusion on your return. It used to be really easy. You'd say, here's the amount that I made. Was it, it, it What portion is taxable? How do you use it now since they changed the return? I haven't even looked at it. Use it the same way. Uh, you just put the exclusion on there. And, and that's all you're doing is yeah. saying, what's the exclusion? The exclusion is gain only. So if you have, again, if you use it as a home office and you weren't using our strategy of reimbursement, you're going to have a little bit of an issue on the right. depreciation and you're going to have to do the residential use, non-residential use. You're going to have to play which portion of that. Todd, the, the exclusion is if you're a U.S. citizen and it's your home and you lived in it two of the last five years, you did not do a 1031 exchange on that same property within five years. You have not done another 121 exclusion in the last 24 months. Then you have a $250,000 exclusion as a single person or $500,000 exclusion if you're married, so long as you both meet the ownership and use tests. I wish I could make it easier than that, but most people just say it's, hey, you don't have to pay tax on $500,000 if you're married. It's not quite that easy, but all right. We, we talk a lot about how hard the IRS is on, is on us, but mm-hmm. a lot of it is tax filings are based on kind of an honor code. Yeah, it's self-reporting system. It's self. It's a self-reporting system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some ways that they can track and see if you actually report it. What other people claimed you earned? No. So people say, "Hey, do I have to report all my income?" No. You just might go to jail if you don't. You have a choice. They're not putting a gun to your head. Technically, they're just threatening you with jail time if you if you if you evade taxes. If you avoid taxes, you're fine. But if you have a proclivity, like if you just love orange jumpsuits, by all means, don't report it. So in a case like this, if they were to audit you, and it doesn't happen that often, they would probably ask for your past two years returns before this return, mm-hmm. just to see if you took the 121 exclusion. Yeah. Actually, they have those returns. So 
they look at them. If the property is a rental, does the two-year come into play or is that only for your personal property? It depends. It can come into play because the two out of five years is, did I own it and use it as my primary residence two of the last five years? So think about this. I could live in a house for two years. I could rent it for two years and then sell it. And I'm still underneath that statute and I don't have to pay any tax on the gain. On the gain. So capital gain. That does not mean recapture. Depreciation recapture is something else. And I would have to pay the recapture on my depreciation that I could have taken or that I did take. They don't even care whether you did it. And then you could do a 10 or you could just do a 1031 exchange because two years renting it out more than 14 days, you're in a safe harbor. You're absolutely, you could, that is a investment property. You can 1031 exchange it. And I believe depreciation recapture goes away with the 1031. 1031 exchange rolls it into a new one. If you accelerated the recapture, you just have to keep the same accounting methodology on the new one. What states besides PA do not recognize 1031 just to be on the safe side? I'm not aware of any others. Mm. I, I, and I think that federally, PA doesn't get to do anything on 1031. They still recognize it 1031. That They just don't have a necessarily corresponding state statute. Same way, like we have accelerated depreciation federally. California may say, no, I don't accept that. You still get to take it on your federal return, no matter what. So anyway, that's it. Come to our tax and asset protection workshop live. It's coming up in a couple weeks. August 28th. So that is about two weeks, something like that. And it's Clint and myself, and we always have a fun time on a Saturday. So come on in. It's free. If you can't make it, we still send you the recording nine times out of 10. Uh, somebody says, wow, only 17 minutes. Oh, you're trolling me right now, Sherry. Hmm. All right. Register for, just teasing you. Hey, if you like the podcast, come on and, uh, and visit us. And I miss you, Sherry. I can't wait till you're able to come back out to Vegas get on the bikes and ride every now and again clients do come out here and we do ride around on motorcycles even though vegas is the motorcycle get run over capital of the world i'm pretty convinced because we have some of the crappiest drivers out there oh terrible but we'll go out to lake mead we'll go out to valley of fire we'll goof off podcast by all means go and check us out you can see a bunch of stuff I'm thinking I just did a really cool, there's there's going to be some really cool podcasts coming your way here pretty quick. I'm doing a really cool uh, conversation with Tom Ferry tomorrow morning, if you know who that is. Not Tom, it's his son. So we're going to be, we're going to be going over a whole bunch of fun stuff uh, and that, and what else we're going to do? Replays, uh, you can go into the Platinum and uh, we're going to have some fun. In there, you can always go into the Platinum portal. If you're a Platinum, you can see all of the Tax Tuesdays. If you have questions, go to TaxTuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Just email us or just visit Anderson Advisors. Do you have anything else? I do not. Yeah, so we're, yeah, we're 20 minutes over. I'm looking at it right now. It's not horrible. So again, we're going to have some fun. If you do want to, tomorrow morning, Tom Ferry, we're going to do Q&A. It's always fun to get really, really smart people on. So if, if you haven't seen that, by all means, just reach out, go onto our website. Uh, it's completely free again. And uh, if you haven't, if you don't know who he is, he's a real estate coach, works with some of the best top realtors in the, in the country. And uh, he's just fun to talk to because he's really, 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 really bright. So I'm gonna, I got a bunch of questions to get to ask and that we're going to go over. So you can always join us tomorrow morning. Otherwise, by all means, come on and join us at the Tax and AP event. If you haven't been, 
Uh, for those of you who have been, you know what it's all about. We love to go into LLCs, corporations, trusts, how to use them, 401ks, living trusts. We try to hit a lot and we go over some of the tax aspects of how they work together, how to make yourself disappear on a public record so people can't just go out there and target you. And it's a whole bunch of fun. So we'll see you when we see you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 